Hello and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Eric. What's going on, everybody? For this episode, we'll be talking about the Lake Boda murders, an unsolved crime that took place in Finland in the summer of 1960. And this topic was suggested to us by Pivey, who lives in Finland, and asked us to look into this notorious crime mystery. I, I just wanted to say before we get started that um, doing research for this particular crime mystery is a really dark and disturbing situation, but it really has kind of a interesting storyline. So Lake Bodum is actually a lake by the city of Espoo, and that's 22 kilometers or 14 miles northwest of the country's capital, Helsinki. And in the early hours of June 5th, 1960, four teenagers who were camping on the shores of Lake Bodum were suddenly and violently attacked by an unknown assailant. And three of the four teenagers would end up brutally murdered. As a famous cold case, the Lake Bodum murder case has remained a notorious topic in Finland. So a fascinating aspect of this infamous scene is that multiple separate suspects would actually confess to committing the crimes at different times. And instead of making this a clear-cut case, it rather just makes this mystery more confusing. So to date, there's still no clear explanation as to who committed the murders or why. So in this episode, we'll be discussing the backstory leading up to the Lake Bodum event, as well as going over the details of the murder scene. We'll also present the most likely suspects and the theories revolving around what actually happened that night. Now, before we get started with this case, a reminder that Strange Matters is made possible by our generous supporters over at Patreon. For listeners who enjoy Strange Matters and would like to help donate to the show, you can visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters, or you can just visit our site and click the Support Us page. Our patrons of Strange Matters can also gain access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes. And for this episode, we'd like to especially thank our newest supporters, Michael, Hale, and Donald. So thanks a lot, guys. All right, so now we'll be moving on to the murders. On Saturday, June 4th, in the year 1960, four Finnish teenagers, two girls and two boys, decided to camp along the shores of Lake Bodum. The two girls were Myla Bjorklund and Anya Maki, both 15 years old. Accompanying them were their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo Boisman and Niels Willem Gustafsson. The teens spent the night at the lake, having fun and enjoying some drinks. After the day was done, the group of four went to their pop tent at around midnight to sleep. So the exact details of what happens next is not known entirely um, for certain. At some point between the hours of 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. on Sunday, June 5th, 1960, an unknown attacker set upon the tent and its occupants without warning. The four teens inside were helpless as the assailant assaulted them from the outside, and the small tent would collapse under the violent onslaught as the attacker used both a knife and some sort of blunt object on the victims. Due to this sudden attack, three of the young teens would end up dying from their wounds. So Myla Bjorklund, Seppo Boisman, and Anya Maki were all stabbed and or bludgeoned to death. 
the only survivor would be Niels Gustafsson, though he had pretty severe injuries during the attack. Um, he actually sustained a concussion from a blow to his head and some fractures to his jaw and facial bones. And when the tent would eventually be discovered, Niels would be found partially out of the torn and ripped tent in a barely lucid state due to his injuries. So, to me, it would seem that whoever was behind the attack did not carry out for personal or revenge reasons on these four teens themselves. Um, I think that because he assaulted them from the outside of the tent in a wild manner. So he didn't actually see clearly who he was attacking or the site of his carnage. So to me, that just sounds like the person wanted the crime to be more impersonal. He didn't want to directly look at his victims. And also the fact that one of the teens actually survived and was just badly injured but not killed suggested that perhaps murder wasn't the sole and only motive, that he didn't really care whether or not the kids in the side of the tent actually died. I think that's more just a crime of opportunity. Perhaps this killer, whoever he was, saw the teen setting up camp or maybe he just walked across the campsite at night and you know, maybe he's just in some kind of mentally unbalanced or psychopathic state and just carried out his attack more on impulse. Uh, it doesn't really sound to me like the work of a calculated or patient killer. Sure. So it's definitely the kind of scenario where if you're doing this on as a as an act of impulse you kind of wouldn't like if you had planned it out in advance you could probably be more calculated and more precise with it instead of just slashing through a tent and swinging a, some sort of blunt object right. so I can kind of see yeah. that it's pretty terrifying I mean it makes me wonder the teens inside the tent if they actually knew what was going on if you were to imagine if you were in your place and you're sleeping having after a night of fun and then all of a sudden you wake up, the tent's falling on you, something is slashing and pounding down on you through the tent. Everyone around you is screaming and trying to escape, and everyone's being brutally murdered. It must have been incredibly confusing and terrifying for them. It's hard to say if they even had time to figure out what was going on, or if they were just going on panic and pure instinct to get out before dying or passing out. I mean, they might even thought it was like a bear attack or something. Yeah, they probably didn't have much of an idea of what was going on before they actually succumbed to their injuries. So as we mentioned before, the attack occurred around 4 a.m., possibly a little later. Uh, Sometime after that, they think around 6 a.m., a small group of boys who were actually walking in the woods, birdwatching, saw the campsite from a distance. And they did notice the collapsed tent and could see a blonde man who was walking away from the tent. And they must have not have thought or been close enough to see exactly what was going on. And they weren't really alarmed, and they just kept on going on their way. It wasn't actually until the afternoon when another man discovered the tent, a local man named Rizzo Siren, who was jogging near the lake, and he came across the site. And he saw the collapsed tent also, but then noticed that it had been slashed open and that he could see a body on top. So the man quickly ran over and alerted the police, who arrived on scene shortly thereafter. So the police were pretty shocked at this grisly scene, and it was sort of a gruesome crime that they were not really used to encountering or that they were even prepared to investigate. And upon arrival, it was discovered that Niels Gustafsson was in fact still alive, 
but the other three teens had been murdered and died of their injuries. Um, from the state of the tent, they concluded that the attacker had never actually entered the tent at all, but instead remained on the outside while he slashed through the tent to attack the occupants with his knife and his blunt instrument, whatever that was. And the police would sweep the surrounding area, but the murder weapons would never be found. And Myla, who was Gustafsson's 15-year-old girlfriend, seemed to have received the most injuries and trauma out of all of them. She'd been stabbed and beaten repeatedly until she died, but during her autopsy, it would be discovered that she was actually stabbed several times after she had already been dead. So she was found undressed from the waist down, but it's unknown if that was just how she was sleeping or if her pants had been somehow removed during or sometime after the murder. And Mila's body was found lying partially on top of the tent as well. The other two teens, uh, Boisman and Maki, were found under the shredded collapsed tent. And they received significantly less direct trauma than Mila, but still it was enough to actually kill them pretty quickly. And there was no significant findings about the positions they were found in or the state of their dress. And then finally, we have Gustafsson, who was found on top of the tent near his deceased girlfriend, Myla. And he had received several blows to the head, but nothing life-threatening. And this fact would come into play later on when we discuss theories. But for now, we will continue on discussing the investigation of the crime scene. Right, so the police noticed right away that it appeared that some of the personal items of the teenagers were missing. This prompted them to believe at first that perhaps this was just a robbery and that was the main motive behind this gruesome crime. The wallets were nowhere to be found and some of the clothes the teens had been wearing the day before were also missing. Gustafsson's shoes had also been taken away from the tent. The police and some local volunteers began searching around the lake for clues and at some point later on, several of the missing clothing, along with Niels Gustafsson's shoes, were found in the woods, about 500 meters away from the crime scene. However, several articles of clothing, notably Seppo Boisman's leather jacket, would never be located. Now, one interesting thing to note is that the police tracked away a set of bloody footprints leading away from the tent, presumably those belonging to the killer himself. After the discovery of the missing clothes and personal items, it was linked that whoever left the track was actually wearing Gustafsson's shoes. Now, Niels Gustafsson himself had no memory of the attack, but could remember the events leading up to the day before. He mentioned that him and his friends, they didn't visit any other tents in the area or campers at the lake, and that no one else had come around where they had been set up. Now, sometime after the murders, Gustafsson went under hypnosis in an attempt to see if he could subconsciously remember any details. And while under hypnosis, he came up with a description of the attacker, a kind of odd-looking man with blonde hair. Several of these sketches of the perpetrator came out of these sessions, and they would be a semi-close match to at least one of the known suspects that we will discuss later on in the episode. Interestingly, during the funerals of one of the deceased teenagers, a photograph was taken of the crowd at the event. And after the sketches were later compared to these photographs, a man in the crowd who looked eerily similar to the drawings was found. The police tried to question the others who attended the funeral, but 
No one could say who this mysterious man was. However, there were multiple people who had come to the funeral who were not from the area since it was kind of a big event, and the locals didn't know everybody who was there. So it is probably more likely that it was just some random guy in the crowd rather than the murderer, but the chance is always there. Now, the problem I have with this hypnosis and the sketchings is I don't know how reliable this information is. I don't think hypnosis can help you remember stuff if your memories are blocked from actual physical brain trauma because remember Gustafsson had a suffered a pretty bad concussion yeah that's a good point if it was just like something he had blocked out over a period of time from psychological trauma then I think hypnosis would serve more benefit in uncovering these memories but it does seem like he was did suffer an actual concussion and actually suffered amnesia from the concussion Mm -hmm. and I, I agree with you. I don't think they'd be able to uncover this sort of information. Yes. So does that mean he was just making it up? I don't... I mean, this was sometime afterwards, so who knows? Maybe his imagination was starting to creep in or it just some random image that popped into his head. But, yeah, I, I don't really think we can put much stock in this hypnosis, hypnosis sessions or the sketches that came out of it. Now, as we just mentioned, Myla Bjorklund's killing was much more gruesome than any others. So the question is, was this merely a coincidence? You know, perhaps her body was just the closest to the attacker when he was outside the tent. Or perhaps she was the direct target of the killer, making this actually a more personal crime. Now, if this was the case, then maybe the others were just collateral damage which perhaps is proved by the fact that Niels Gustafsson survived with relatively minor wounds compared to his girlfriend. Yeah, that would make sense. So if the attacker had intentionally targeted uh, Bjorklund, then if the other three actually die or not doesn't really matter to the murderer. And Gustafsson just survived by chance. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense because her body was semi out of the tent and that she was attacked after she was dead. So it's kind of, whoever did it made sure that she was dead, where the other two were still in the tent, so he probably never even saw their bodies. And then Gustafsson was out of the tent also, but alive. So, yeah, to me it kind of makes sense that she would be possibly is the direct and only intended target of this whole attack. And I think the other thing that we're kind of touching on that we'll get into a little bit later is that perhaps Gustafsson... Um, played a role or was in fact the murderer himself um, given that given his relationship with Bjorklund and one of the things I came across in my research for this episode was that um, when questioned later on Gustafsson stated that he actually saw a black cloaked figure with bright red eyes coming towards them during the attack so this could mean a couple different things coming from him so it could be that he was you know indeed a victim and he was just completely delirious during the attacks it could be something that over time he sort of fabricated in his own mind and he completely believed it um or it could just be a kind of bs um lie that he had intentionally fabricated to sort of throw people off his trail and make him seem more innocent yeah i mean 
it sounds like something out of a movie, you know, black cloaked figure with glowing red eyes. Um, it'd make more sense to me that he really didn't get a good look during the whole attack. And like you said, either he just kind of pieced it together over time or it was a result of the brain trauma he received or it could have just been, you know, just a quick lie that he told just to get suspicion off of him. Right. You know. Now, another thing with this, the investigation is the thing with Gustafson's shoes is pretty interesting to me. I don't know, why would the killer swap out his own footwear for Gustafson's shoes, but then later on just ditch them a few hundred meters away from the scene? And my thing is, maybe he either did not have any shoes on or left his behind because he didn't want to get any blood on them. Uh, if that was the case, then he probably wasn't wearing anything at all when he attacked the tent, just not wanting to get any incriminating blood on any of his own clothings. I just don't know why you would put on someone else's shoes just to walk a few hundred meters away then ditch them. So that was kind of an odd part of this whole thing to me. And granted, this was the 1960s, but if a murderer other than Gustafsson were to do that, all he's doing is increasing his chances of leaving some sort of clue. Right. Um, so it seems like a rational person probably wouldn't do that. At the same time, in Gustafsson's defense, um, I don't know that he would be capable in his medical state with his fractured jawbone and his concussion and everything. I don't know if he would be capable such a short time after the murders occurred to have actually gotten up and walked away. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll get into that a little bit more yeah. later on. Right. Um, and the whole thing that, so the police think that robbery might've been a motive. Um, I mean, it would seem that a robbery might be a motive for the crime as the killer did take the wallets away and some of the clothing and personal effects of the victims but then he later dumped most of those clothings just a few distance away, just like we said, along with the shoes. So I'm wondering why bother taking them at all. I mean, it seems like it's kind of like we were saying, you just take more chance. You're slowing yourself down. The only thing I could think is that perhaps he grabbed all that he could really quickly. And then once he was a safe distance away, he put them all down and actually went through and decided what was worth keeping and what could be left behind. And he decided just to keep... The wallets and Seppo's leather jacket, I guess he thought it looked cool or something, but left the majority of the personal effects that he took from the tent and just dumped them a few hundred meters away. So I can kind of see a robbery motive just because he did take the wallets, but it just sounds, it seems weird that he took a bunch of clothing but then left it just, you know, a few hundred meters away. Yeah, it's definitely unusual. Again, kind of an irrational decision to make as the murderer yourself all you're doing is um, increasing your chances of kind of leaving some sort of clue yeah i mean it seemed to me that whoever did this wasn't exactly in their right frame of mind it seems like this whole thing was kind of haphazard and spontaneous rather than planned out yeah i've been i've been kind of pulling back on the reins i'm eager to discuss some of the theories and the suspects um, so we'll now go over some of the possible or more likely suspects that the police have come up with um, that they think are capable of having committed these crimes. So the first one is Penty Soinen, and Penty was a man convicted of several crimes in the 1960s, and he had worked as a maintenance man before being arrested. Penty had grown up 
near the area where the crime had taken place, but was only 15 when the Lake Bowdoin murders occurred. Nine years later, while serving time in jail for robbery and assault charges, Penty would confess to the savage murders that took place in 1960. And the police would come and interrogate the man, but they did not give his confession very much weight. So Penty was a known liar, and he would often go on rambling and confusing rants, especially when he was intoxicated. Though he had a laundry list of crimes, murder was not one of them. And taking into account all of these different facts, especially considering he was only a young teen himself, and could not or would not go into specifics of the Lake Bowdoin murders, the police ruled him out as a likely culprit. Some of you listeners may be wondering why this man would confess to something as horrific as a murder if, in fact, he had nothing to do with it. But it's actually something that happens more often than you'd think. If a criminal has absolutely nothing to lose, why not try to brag or take credit for something that would gain him some sort of notoriety? Some people obviously crave this sort of attention. As has been the case in countless other crimes... It could be that Penty was either lying about the whole thing or was perhaps trying to claim responsibility to gain this type of popularity or notoriety. In any case, his story was not believed by the authorities. And after being discarded by the police, Penty would go on to have troubled times in jail, ultimately committing suicide by hanging himself in a transport station for the prison shortly after this incident. And some people believe that his suicide was because he was so guilty but it it just seemed like he was a troubled guy yeah so i i know that this individual has probably the least um evidence to support that he was the actual murderer but you know given that he was 15 at the time that puts him right in the middle of the age group of the four individuals who were attacked Mm -hmm. the four victims and so it's it's possible you know at the time Granted, a 15-year-old is less likely to have the mental capacity to commit murder, but it is possible to think that he had some sort of social interaction with these individuals, whether it's at school or just a circle of friends, and that that might have stirred up some sort of turmoil between them that would lead to him wanting to murder them. Right. And then kind of as we were saying before, where some of the uh, aspects of the case didn't really make much sense for a experienced criminal maybe because he was 15 is why you know the attack was so spontaneous and really messy and he didn't really know what he was doing so you could say that um, but I just don't know I doubt a 15 year old like that would be able to get away with this kind of murder without breaking or telling anybody and the fact that it took him nine years and he was already locked up in prison, and his mental state was deteriorating. I, I don't really buy his story all that much. And it's not like he went on after that to then murder a bunch of other people or right, even yeah. be accused of that. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, what's most interesting to me about Penty's statement is not that he confessed to the murders, but rather he was just the first person to confess. And that kind of leads us to the next suspect, and that is Carl Valdemir Gilstrom. Uh, Gilstrom worked at a kiosk nearby where the crime took place by the lake. And Gilstrom seemed to be the angry neighbor sort of the town. He was well known to be a violent man. 
he had a bad reputation for just being aggressive and hostile towards some people, just being an overall dick. And for some reason, he was known to especially have a disdain for campers. Uh, due to his generally bad nature, Gilstrom was deemed as a suspect shortly after the murders, and more attention was brought on to him by his neighbors when they discovered that he had filled in the well in his yard of his house just a few days after the death of the three teenagers. And the police came to investigate, and they searched his property. They even brought some hounds along to see if they could pick up any traces of scent that belonged to any of the four teens, but they couldn't find anything really. The police questioned him, but he was not seen as the likely culprit, and his wife vouched for him, giving him an alibi that they, she said that they were together all night that the Lake Boda murders occurred. Uh, because of this, the well was never searched by the police, and this leads some to continue to believe that Gilstrom did commit the murders, and even some of his family think that he dumped the murder weapons down the well before filling it in. So it is suspicious that some of his people who knew him best, even his family members, did believe that he would commit the murders. Um, I mean, that's possible given that the murder weapons were never actually located. But then again, you know, you've got a murder scene that's occurring right next to the lake. And it's a very large lake. So it's, there's a high likelihood that the murder weapons were just chucked into the lake. Yeah. I mean, the police did search the lake, but as we mentioned earlier this kind of crime had never really happened there so the police force there they probably weren't prepared you know to handle something like this so even if the killer did dump his weapons you know in the lake or somewhere around it it's likely that in the next couple of days he could have gone back and retrieved them and the police hadn't found them yet so you know you just never know with that kind of thing and the other thing about gilstrom is as you had mentioned, he was really a sort of aggressive guy, and he in particularly hated these campers so much. He was known to throw rocks at people that would walk by um, with camping gear and stuff like that. Just kind of a, a real jerk. And it, at least as far as I'm ranking the two suspects so far, it seems more likely that the uh, crime kind of fits Jillstrom's personality a little bit more. Yeah. And the fact that he was, you know, right there, pretty much on the lake at the time, and he did have this reputation of being aggressive towards campers like the four teenagers that night. Since the police didn't find anything incriminating at his house, and the fact that his wife said that he was with her all night, the police didn't really continue their investigation towards him as a suspect. However, there were several there were several events later on that would seem to point back in Gilstrom's direction. Uh, shortly before his wife would die from breast cancer, the bedridden woman confessed to a friend that the whole story of the alibi was a lie. Gilstrom, in fact, had not been at the house that night with her. She continued on with her statement from her deathbed, saying that her husband had threatened to kill her if she didn't play along and tell the police what he wanted, that they had been together all that night. And even further than that, nine years after the murders, during a drunken state... Gilstrom was heard to mutter by one of his neighbors, I killed them. And in this conversation, he wouldn't specify further. And considering his past and connections with the case, many believe that with this statement, he was talking about the Lake Boda murders. And to add to this theory even further, the day after Gilstrom would drunkenly make this statement, he would go on to commit suicide. 
drowning himself in Lake Bodum, not too far from where the brutal murders took place. So taking all this into account, it's easy to see why many people believe Gilstrom was the murderer, considering that he openly hated these campers as we said, he's acted hostile towards them, he forced and threatened to kill his wife if she didn't lie to the police and give him an alibi, along with his possible drunken confession and subsequent suicide. It certainly is not unbelievable that this is the man who committed the murders. That being said, there are still some reasons why he was not possibly not be the man. Gilstrom apparently did do some landscaping and earth-moving task part-time on the side, so filling in deep holes or wells would have been something he had done before. It may have been suspicious that he did fill in the well in his yards just a few days after the murders, but it could have just been something that he needed to do, and the whole timing thing was just a coincidence. Also about his wife flipping on him, the police themselves never actually heard Gilstrom's wife make this statement, that she lied about an alibi as she has told it to a friend at the hospital. When the police arrived and they tried to question her, she would not tell them basically anything. And some people believe that she either made it up, but most people believe that she was keeping quiet and didn't want to make an official statement because she feared for her safety and the safety of her children. But still the fact remains that as far as the investigation goes, Gilstrom's alibi still stands. And also his so-called confession that happened right before his suicide, it couldn't really be taken as evidence by the police, as by all accounts Gilstrom was pretty wasted at the time when he made the cryptic statement of killing someone, and he hadn't really said anything like that when he was sober. And add in the fact that there really wasn't any physical evidence at all licking him to the scene, you know, no murder weapons, no bloodstained clothing or anything, there weren't any any there weren't even any eyewitness accounts about seeing him in the area that night so there still is enough doubt to conclusively believe that Carl Gilstrom was the murderer the third suspect and the one who most people consider to be the most likely culprit is Hans Osman now Hans a German man was allegedly a former KGB spy and his life was a bit of a mystery until he had some interviews later in his life where he told a former police officer that he had served in a Nazi SS division and was stationed for a time at Auschwitz. The suspicion towards him began on June 6th, the day after the murders. And on that day, Hans showed up at the Helsinki Surgical Hospital. He was said to have been behaving erratically. His clothing was unkempt and had several red stains on him. Hans would not give a straight answer as to why he was looking in such a disheveled state, even going as far to faking being unconscious several times when he was questioned. And his overall hostile and twitchy nature during his stay at the hospital caused the staff to become suspicious, especially given the terrible crimes committed just a day earlier. And once the police were tipped off to the man, they noticed several things that many believe are incriminating. So when he showed up at the hospital, Hans' outfit closely matched the description of the man seen walking away from the scene. Also, in the days that followed the crime, when the word got out that the description of the man at the campsite had longish blonde hair, Hans would go on to cut his own blonde hair short. Also, Hans lived only a handful of kilometers from Lake Bodum, 
despite his suspicious actions and the statements of the hospital staff, he would never actually be a suspect from the police's point of view. Yeah, so the police would question Hans, but it is significant to note that it was a very quick interrogation, and they claimed to have not found anything at all pointing towards him being the guilty party. Now, strangely enough, the police did not go back to interview the doctors who treated Hans the day after the Lake Bodum murders when he showed up in the hospital, and they did not take his stained clothing for testing, despite the hospital staff's belief that the stains on his clothes were in fact blood. Now, it seemed to me that there are several possible explanations regarding Hans Ausman as the killer and the police's attitude towards him. The first being that the police either received some type of answers from him or had some other way of knowing that he was not at the lake that night. And though he may have been a weirdo and a bad guy and possibly had bloodstained clothing, the law enforcement had some strong reason to believe that this was not their guy for the murders, and that was why he was so quickly dismissed and no further investigation occurred. On the flip side, another reason could be that the police were simply incompetent, and for one reason or another, they did not feel the need to look closer into Hans's story. Maybe they already had someone else in mind, like Gilstrom, and they didn't bother following up on Hans, or maybe they just didn't have the experience or ability to conduct a proper investigation. Whatever the case, as we have seen in plenty of other murders that we've covered on the podcast, there's always the chance that the police just straight up made a mistake in how they treated the man. Now, the third possibility goes back to the rumors that Hans was a KGB spy. If this was the case, it would easily explain why the man was treated so lightly by the police. It could be that behind the scenes, the politics were going on from the Soviets, and the police were either ordered or directly threatened into not looking into Hans further as the murder suspect and forced into just letting him go. If Hans was in fact KGB, I could see this being a very strong possibility but we don't have any real confirmation that he actually was a spy. It's mostly just all allegations and rumors. And that was my first thought when I was reading about Hans, was that he sort of weaseled his way out of these accusations due solely to his connections with the government. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a very real possibility. If he does have some higher-ups in the government, could easily pull the strings into uh, kind of letting him go. Right. So Hans to this day is still considered by most people to be the most likely suspect um, who actually committed these murders. And one of the hospital staff who was working with Hans on the day he came in wrote several books about the murder and is convinced that the man in the supposed bloodstained clothes was the killer. A former detective chief in Finland who is familiar with the case not only believes Osman committed these murders but it is also a likely suspect in up to five other murders as well. And that opens the door into thinking that Osman is not just a disturbed man who broke down and committed this brutal crime, but could also actually be a serial killer. An interesting theory, but unfortunately, there's just not enough evidence and proof to link Hans decisively to the Lake Bodum murders or any of the other crimes he's suspected for. Right, so a lot of people do believe Hans is the man just because of how he was acting in the hospital. He showed up in possibly bloodstained clothing. Again, we don't know for sure because they never tested it. Um, All the doctors there thought that he was acting suspicious, but 
you know, I mean, the police didn't take him seriously, whether it was because they knew he wasn't the guy or, you know, his spy connections, if he did have them, was keeping them from it. It's just hard to know. There's just too many loose ends to really point as Hans as the murder suspect. Now, we'll go on to the last suspect, which we've alluded to a little earlier in the episode. And this did not come into play until many years after the murders actually took place. And it certainly came as a surprise to many who were involved. So decades after the crimes took place, a new investigation started looking into the murder case with a fresh look, as well as the benefit of more modern forensic testing. In a twisting turn of events, in the spring of 2004, 44 years after that fateful night of the Lake Boda murders, the police would arrest the sole survivor, Niels Gustafsson, and charged him with three acts of murder against his young friends. Now, Gustafsson, who at this point was married with two kids, was taken by complete surprise by this turn of events. The Finnish National Bureau of Investigation looked into the case and studied the forensic evidence and photographs of the scene. According to a more modern take on the pattern of the bloodstains, it was believed that only the three murdered teens were being attacked in the tent, suggesting that Niels Gustafsson could have slipped outside and have been the one to attack them. In their official statement, they believe Niels, for some reason, erupted with a violent rage, again mostly directed at his then-girlfriend, Myla Bjorkland, whose wounds were far more severe than any of the others involved. As we mentioned earlier, she received multiple stab wounds after she had already been lying dead for a while, perhaps suggesting the trauma was more personal regarding her attack. The MBI's theory goes on to state that Gustafsson's dispatched the other two teens in a quicker, less bloodier fashion, as in he just needed to get rid of the potential witnesses. Again, it's worth noting that his own injuries were not deadly and far less impactful than any others, rather just receiving just two major blows to the head, one to the front of his jaw and the other to the back of his head which he could have even self-inflicted just to make it look real. It does kind of make sense. So it raises the question, why would an unbiased killer inflict such disproportionately severe wounds on Myla while leaving Gustafsson, for the most part, intact? That's not to say that his wounds were not significant. Um, But, you know, there are theories out there circulating that Gustafsson knew prior to arriving at the campsite that he was going to murder the three out of jealousy, anger, given that the girlfriend was stabbed far more severely than the other two. And the thought is that Gustafsson stepped outside the tent for whatever reason and then began his attack. So during the assault, Gustafsson sustained multiple injuries but was able to wash himself off in the lake and dispose of the murder weapon. And then he simply lied on the tent until someone found him. Irregardless, it's coincidental that he sustained these relatively minor injuries compared to the others. Also, he attempted to make it look like a simple robbery by tossing some of their belongings into the lake. You know, we have the footprints, the bloody footprints of Gustafsson that led away from the tent. There's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that Gustafsson might have been responsible. Yeah, it might seem kind of outrageous at first, but there definitely are some things that could point in his direction, as you just said. 
Now, his trial started in the summer of 2005, and he was facing a lifetime imprisonment for the crimes. The prosecution presented their story and used DNA profiling of the crime scene to raise suspicion on Gustafsson. Now, one of the key pieces of evidence was the shoes, which we've kind of mentioned before, and it had traces of blood from the three victims on it, plus his own. Now, the fact that the blood was found on his shoes doesn't really seem damning to me, because I would just think with the carnage of the attack, I could see how some drops of blood could have flown off or landed on his shoes, which were outside the tent. And remember that his shoes were not actually found at the site, but several hundred meters away. So the prosecution argues that, kind of like Eric was saying, he was trying to hide the evidence, but those who supported and defended him say that the killer took them and dumped them later on. But again, it does seem weird. Why would the killer actually wear the shoes to walk away? It might make more sense that it was actually Gustafsson himself who was walking away. But at the same time, I don't know, as an 18-year-old, if I would be able to savagely murder three people and then just lay on a tent waiting for somebody to find me. In that particular situation, in my mind, I would be thinking... I would be far better off just running away as quickly as possible and getting a jump start on anybody who's trying to find me. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, as we said, the attack happened, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. They weren't found until around noon, so he would have been had lying there six or seven hours. So it does seem kind of odd that if he did stage the whole thing, you know, you think after a while he'd be getting too nervous or antsy just to keep laying there. Um... In any case, one thing that goes against his favor is that with the new forensic testing, no other DNA was actually found on any of the clothing, the shoes, or on the tent itself. The only DNA found on the entire scene only belonged to the four teenage campers. So the prosecution argued that whoever assaulted the teens, especially given how violent and random and savage the attack was, Surely they would have left behind some traces of DNA. You know, especially since the crime happened before DNA analysis really was a thing. So the killer would have had no reason or even knowledge of how to clean up after himself to leave no trace behind. So, I mean, that's one thing that I found odd that there was no other traces of DNA found at the scene. The defense would argue that Gustafsson would be in no shape to have carried out the attacks with a concussion and multiple broken facial bones and still be in a state to stage the scene afterwards to make it actually look like someone else did it. And they would use the initial investigation theory that there was an outsider or perhaps several outsiders um, who came upon the tent and the sleeping people inside and they suddenly attacked them. And Gustafsson, basically just out of mere luck, was able to escape with his life. I would be pretty upset if I had survived such a savage attack and then was later on being accused of murdering my three friends, but... Yeah, I mean, it probably took him a while to get over it, then all of a sudden he's... not only has to bring up the whole memories of it all, but he's actually accused in, in prison and is being blamed for it all. I mean, regardless, in the end, fortunately... The trial ended in Niels Gustafsson's favor, and he was acquitted of all charges and was granted a pretty large sum of money for the suffering caused by being stuck in jail for nearly a year. 
So though there are some things that point towards Gustafsson as being the guilty party, from all that I've seen online, not really many people actually believe this theory. So my closing thoughts, if I were to pick any of these known suspects, I'd probably go with um, Carl Gilstrom. I mean, we've kind of mentioned he had the attitude of hating the campers. He was known to be a violent man. He supposedly threatened to kill his wife if she didn't lie for him. He possibly drunkenly confessed to the crimes. So there is the limit that there's no evidence linking him to it. But out of all these four suspects... If I had to pick one, I'd probably go with Gilstrom. I was actually thinking Hans Osman was the most likely suspect to me. Um, I think, you know, with his connections to the KGB, um, that he just had so many different ways, connections with the government to kind of get him out of things. And it wouldn't take much um, from a upper echelon government organization to threaten a small local police department and say, you know, just look the other way. That's true. And the fact that he's linked to several other murders. It's like, how many times can you be a suspect in a murder and not be guilty? So right. I, I could see that. I guess we can both agree that Niels Gustafsson probably is not the murderer then, in any case. Okay, so that is the case of the Lake Bodum murders. And you've heard our theories. If you'd like to tell us your own thoughts on the case or which theory or suspect that you think is behind the crime, feel free to send us a message at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, you can always send us suggestions about future episodes. You can also visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can comment, download, and listen to all of our episodes. And finally, we ask that if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes and enjoy the show, please take the time to leave a rating and a review, as it means a lot to us to read your feedback, and it also helps promote the show so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everyone.